Would you turn in your Bible tonight to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 14 through 16 this evening of 1 Peter chapter 1. We've begun a short series on the topic of holiness uh, that Peter picks up in verses 13 and following. Uh, Last week, we noted that holiness is uh, rooted in the hope of grace and how uh, the only, that Christian holiness must be rooted in grace. If it's not rooted in grace, if it's not rooted in a confidence that God is gracious to us and will give grace to us at the end of our life, it will be a holiness driven by legalism, uh, driven by the sense that we uh, either slavish fear or um, a conviction that we can actually earn the favor of God as the Pharisees believed. So last week we just pointed out that grace, a Christian holiness Whatever it is, and we'll look at that tonight, but Christian holiness is grace-filled, uh, delights in grace, is empowered by grace, rooted in grace, and taught by grace. As Paul says in Titus 2, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness. And so um, this uh, evening, we're going to be looking at what is, what is that holiness like? What is Peter talking about when he calls us to be holy? Let's give our attention then to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with the perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. As I said, we'll be looking at verses 14 through uh, 16. Let's Let's just bow our heads for a moment in prayer. God in heaven, we thank you that you give us your word and you give us your spirit to understand it. And so tonight we want, Lord, to be taught by God. uh, That we, Lord, are people who are growing in an understanding of you and your ways. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit would uh, direct our minds and hearts to your word and that you, we would hear you speaking to us clearly and that we would believe what you say and delight in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, if you remember, if you were here, there was one command that we looked at in verse 13. The one imperative was set your hope. Set your hope fully. And tonight, again, we have one command, one imperative in verses 14 through 16. Be holy. Be holy. Uh, We noted last week that we're not quite sure what to do with that command. That as, um, as people who are aware of our own sin and our own weakness, the, the command to be holy just seems, it's, it's just beyond our reach. It sounds in some ways oppressive. It sounds maybe discouraging, impossible. And so we're not quite sure what to do with it. And, and if you remember last week I said, uh, I don't think Peter was winking when he wrote this. He's not, he's not you know, saying be holy, wink, wink. We all know that that's not possible. We know that you're not going to be able to do that. But... Um, 
That's what it says, and, and uh, that's what the Spirit seems to be saying to me. So uh, that's, that's what I'm saying. There's no sense of that. What I love about the way Peter and Paul, the, uh, John, James, pick your uh, apostolic writer, when they talk about Christian obedience and Christian living, they speak with confidence as though this were a known, a given truth that God's people will live obedient lives. That God's people can live obedient lives, and by the power of God, they will. Uh, we need to, and when we come to a command like this, be holy, just maybe it would be helpful to start with some definitions. I think when we hear about words like holiness and glory and righteousness, they all kind of run together in a vague sense of moral goodness, but we're not quite sure what they mean. Uh, I think John Piper was helpful here in, in um, delineating what, what these terms refer to and more specifically, um, if you think about the holiness of God, the holiness of God is the essence of his being. So it is not one of the attributes of God. When we talk about God's attributes, his wisdom, his power, his knowledge, uh, we're talking about various aspects, things that are true about God. But holiness is not an attribute as much as it is a character of all the attributes. God is holy in his wisdom. He's holy in his knowledge, holy in his righteousness, holy in his faithfulness. He, it's, it's the essential, real, core, inner goodness and godness of God. The Lord is holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. He is holy. Um, so it's, it's something that belongs then to God. Maybe it helps to understand that holiness means to be set apart unto. Uh, if... if um, you think about the Sabbath day, right? Why is the Sabbath day holy? Because God set it apart unto his purpose, unto his specific use. Why were lambs that were going to be sacrificed, they were considered holy. They were set apart to God. Well, God is set apart to himself. He is holy. Everything about God is for God and to God. God is holy. The glory of God, then, is the, the radiating beauty of the holiness of God. The glory of God is the, um, the man, manifold and magnified beauty of God's perfections. And so, uh, in Isaiah 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's shining forth. It's radiating from God, the glory of God, the manifestation of all of his perfections. That's the glory of God. The righteousness of God is God's faithfulness to his holiness and his glory. It means that everything that God's, God does, he does in perfect keeping with who he is. He is righteous in all of his ways. Everything that God does, he does in order to magnify his holiness and reveal his glory. And so Paul will say in Romans uh, chapter 3, 23, that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is displayed. And what he means is that in the gospel, God is being faithful to himself. He's faithful both to his mercy and his justice in the cross of Christ. He's faithful both to his hatred of sin and his love for creatures made in his image who are sinful. He is faithful to himself. So the holiness of God, the glory of God, and the righteousness of God, holiness being his core attribute, in his, his core being, his goodness, 
The glory being the beauty that radiates and the righteousness, his faithfulness to those things. And what Peter wants us to hear tonight is that we are to be holy as God is holy. Now that's a big, big command. The essence of it is be set apart unto God. In everything that you are, be about him. Maybe a, a, a poor illustration, but it might, it might help you. If, if you are dealing with a married couple, they're, um, and maybe they're not getting along, the, one way you could counsel them is to remind them, hey, you are married. You took covenant vows and, and you bound yourself to one another in marriage. And, and so the counsel is, be married. Be what you are. Be what you've, what you've committed to, what you, what you in fact are. You are in a covenant relationship. Now live out of that. We're going to see that that's very much what Peter is saying. Be what you are by God's calling. Be holy as God is holy. Tonight we're going to break this, these few verses down to three parts again. The, the believer's character in verse 14, the believer's calling, and the believer's confidence. The believer's character, his calling, and his confidence. Notice how Peter starts. It's interesting. He starts with the words, as obedient children. A better translation would be, as children of obedience. I think that's a, a better uh, translation of the Greek here. It, what it is, it's a Hebraism. It's a way of classifying someone's inner character by saying that they are a child of something. If, if we want to, if I would uh, want to say that so-and-so is, is, is really nice, I, I, I could say it just that way. You know, so-and-so is just the nicest person. But if I really want to try to get you to sense that, that niceness seems to be just wrapped up in the core of that person, it, it defines their character, I, I, would, I would say something like they have a, a very kind heart. So that, that kindness is bound up within this person. It, it, it flows out of this person. In, in a sense, she can't help it. It's who she is. And the Hebrew would, would try to communicate that idea by saying it's, it's a child of kindness. We, we see this negatively in the Old Testament. For instance, in Hosea 10.9, where God refers to Israel as sons of iniquity. In Isaiah chapter 54, he calls Israel children of transgression. That, that transgression is bound up within them. It defines their character. Well, here Peter is taking that Hebraism idea, and he's referring to his readers then as children of obedience. He, he ascribes this characteristic to them, this, this character uh, to them, that obedience is bound up within them. It, it flows out of them. They, they live in it in a sense. They, they can't help it. Now, I think that's not how we usually think about ourselves. As I study this, and, and it's not the first time this thought has struck me, but it seems to me that as Reformed Christians, we have a tendency to talk about ourselves differently than the way Peter and Paul talk about us. Uh, Peter and Paul obviously will recognize that we are not yet perfected, but they don't tend to emphasize the failures, the inabilities 
as, as we tend to do in Reformed circles. So when, when Reformed Christians talk about doing good works, we're usually very quick to say something like, but it's, you know, they're not, it's not really, it's not perfect good works. It's not, they're not meritorious good works. They're, it's only a, a small beginning of good works. And maybe someone will remember uh, Isaiah, you know, all of uh, their righteousness is, is like filthy rags, and, and they can th- throw that, that in there as well. Well, it, it sounds modest to say, you know, we're just a bunch of sinners. And are we a bunch of sinners? Yeah, we are. But, but that's not really how the Bible talks about us. It's not how, it's not how Paul talks about Christians, if you look at, if you have your Bible, go with me, would you, with me to Romans chapter 6? Romans chapter 6. I just want you to see how freely they speak about the obedience, the actual obedience of a believer. Romans chapter 6, and then we'll go to Romans 16. Remember, what is the word, what's Paul's favorite word for a Christian? When he writes to the people in Corinth, what does he say? To all the Saints. Every letter is like that. The saints, the saints in Corinth. Do you know what was going on in Corinth? The saints in Corinth? Yeah, the saints. The, the holy ones of God in Corinth. That's his favorite way of speaking of them. Look at uh, Romans chapter 6. Let's look at verse uh, 16. Uh, he says, well, let's just pick up 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you, have, you were committed and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So he says, you have become obedient from the heart. If you look at chapter 16 of Romans, Romans 16, verse 19. And he talks in verse 19, chapter 16, your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Your obedience is known to all. The apostles have a very optimistic, positive view of what God's people are and what God's people can do. Uh, I've, I've heard, um, well, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> I think it's, every assumption of the apostles is that, is that a person who's been regenerate by the power of God, a person who has the Holy Spirit living within them, can and will obey in a way that pleases God. If you, even if you look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, 1 Peter 1, verse 2, to those who are the elect exiles of the dispersion, he he lists these these areas, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. That, That God called them before the foundation of the world to be given to Jesus, 
to obey Jesus. They've been called for obedience to Jesus Christ. Now, I think that's, that's very helpful. It's very encouraging. Do we sin? Of course we do. Do we ever obey any one of God's laws perfectly? Of course we don't. Do, does our goodness in any way merit or earn the favor of God? Of course not. Do we obey God? Of course we do. Of course we do. If you're a Christian, that's what, that's what Peter says. You see, if a believer has obedience grained in his desires and in his direction so that he is defined by it. A Christian is a person, you see, who, who has come alive to new things, new desires, new values, new pursuits, so, so that we want to walk in the newness of life, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6. We want to, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh, as Paul says in Romans 8. We are engaged in a holy warfare, a holy conflict, on, in hot pursuit of obedience to Jesus Christ. And that is in itself an obedience that pleases God. It pleases God. God delights in it. He is not ashamed to say that we are children of obedience. So we're not there yet. We're not even close to there yet. But if the Spirit of God abides in you, Peter feels free to say to you, he's writing to, to people just like us, Peter's free to call you a child of obedience. Now, what does that mean? What does it look like? The believer's calling. Negatively, notice what Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Uh, Peter remembers what they were like. He remembers what he was like. Uh, there was a former life where they were being formed, molded by their ignorance and the passions that came out of their ignorance. They were ignorant specifically about God. That's the ignorance he's talking about. That Paul will say the same thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 where he talks about the Gentiles who do not know God. And because people do not know God and they don't know God because Paul will say in Romans chapter 1, they suppress the truth of God. The evidence of God is clearly manifested to them in the things that he has made. But they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They hide from the truth because they love the darkness. They love their evil deeds. So the ignorance is chosen, but the ignorance is an ignorance of God. And that ignorance will lead either to gross immorality, the great sin of immorality, or the great sin of external religion and morality. So the Gentiles are lost because of their ignorance of God. The Jews are lost because of their ignorance of God. They both don't understand who he is, what he's like, how to be reconciled to him, and walk in obedience. So Paul in Romans 10, 3, speaking of the Jews, says, being ignorant of the righteousness of God, they sought to establish their own. You see, the God of this age does this. People willingly choose to suppress the truth, and the devil is right there to blind their mind to the truth. And when you're ignorant of God, then you live as if there is no God. Or you live according to a God that you've made up in your own mind, and you're driven then by your passions and lusts. It's, it would just be... Um, mind-boggling to a Jewish person to hear that they were just as much in bondage to their passions and lusts as the most immoral pagan they knew. 
And yet that's exactly what Paul says. Because you see, the, the immoral Gentile is driven maybe by the lust of the flesh, the lust of pleasure, uh, the lust of, of drunkenness and orgies and, and all the idolatry that goes with it, all things that a Jewish moral person would abhor. And yet a Jewish person is driven by the lust for pride, the lust for reputation. And it's just as passionate and just as perverse as the lust of the Gentile. And, ju- and equally driven by an ignorance uh, concerning God. Piper, I think, had a helpful illustration about this. He says, if, uh, speaking of ignorance, if you go to a, a small child, and, and a child who's maybe just beginning to grasp that money has value, money is something to be desired, and you, and you show the child a, a nickel and a dime and ask the child to pick one, it wouldn't be surprising that the child would assume that since the nickel is larger, it has a greater value, and so pick the nickel. And Piper uh, uh, says, that's what the devil does. Uh, he holds out, you see, the pleasures of sin to people who, who don't have an understanding of the true value of things. Uh, you could maybe, for a young child, hold out a quarter and a $50 bill, and they would see a piece of paper on one hand. They're used to pieces of paper, but this looks bright and shiny. It's got some weight to it. Give me the quarter. And that's what the devil does, you see. He, he goes to people who are ignorant of God. They don't have a grasp of spiritual reality, and, and he sells them on nickels. He holds out these, these things that seem to be more valuable, seem to have more weight, and so they sell their soul, which has infinite value, for fleeting pleasures which have no value whatsoever. It's what he does. He's a nickel broker. But Paul, Peter says, that was your former life. In your former life, you were just driven by passions and lust because you didn't get it. You were, you were blind. But that's not you anymore. God has done something in you, something magnificent in you. You have been born again to a living hope by the power of God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So you now have spiritual insight and spiritual knowledge. You understand what matters and who matters. You have a genuine grasp of what is valuable. If you're a believer, that's true of you. You don't always walk according to it, but if you're a believer, you know what ultimately matters. And you have, uh, then you, you are beginning to value different things. You value the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ. One of the things that grieves you when you sin is that you've dishonored Jesus. You've dishonored your Father. He's been so gracious to you. And you want to honor him. You want your life somehow to say something about how good and faithful and kind he is. And yet when you sin, when you get angry, when you get into lust and some temptation or you pursue the things of this world as though they have ultimate value and the Holy Spirit convicts you of that sin, that's part of the grief. Because you, you, you understand things now. You, you, you value things that matter. You value the glory of God. You value God's people. You value the worship of God. You, you, you value it and so you seek it. You desire it and you pursue it. And, and so that's what Peter's saying. He sets up this, this contrast. As children of obedience, don't be molded by your former ignorance and the passions of your former ignorance. That's, that's former you. It's not you anymore. But 
as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all your conduct. In the past, ignorance. In the present, knowledge. And you'll find this, this strong contrast often. Paul in Romans chapter 12. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 1 Thessalonians 4. God has not called us to impurity. He has called us in holiness. There's this, this strong contrast. Don't live like the Gentiles who don't know God. But of those who've been made new now live in holiness. You see, they, they make this contrast because they want us to see that, that holiness is it's, it's just set in the very real practical context of how you live your life and what you live your life for. Holiness is not some esoteric, ethereal, religious idea with vague connotations of trying to be a good person. It's, it's not that. Holiness is not, first of all, about morality. Holiness is what are you pursuing? What are you for? What are you set apart unto? What is it that you're chasing? What do you hunger for? What do you dream about? What do you want? What's driving you? And Peter says, you see, in your new life as an obedient child, you're to be driven by, molded by, a knowledge of God. Driven by the Spirit of God and by the hope of everlasting life. Bearing fruit then in increasing obedience to God it's what you're about, what molds you. And that's why then what Peter does is he puts right in front of us the person of God himself. Be holy as God is holy. Be holy as the one who's called you as holy. And, and again, it's the only command in these three verses. Be holy. That's, that's the imperative. That's the necessary thing. And it's, it's necessary for each one of us. Notice he says... Um, so you also, excuse me, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. There's a reflexive here. Uh, you yourself be holy. You individually, you personally. This is between you and God. You, God has called you to you yourself being holy as he is holy. And he has called you to this in every part of your life, in all of your conduct. Every aspect. That what you're after, what you're for, what you're driving for is the purposes of God, is the, the pleasure of God, the glory of God. That's, that's what's leading you and driving you. So you take holiness when it comes to your finances. Do you have a holy checkbook, a holy wallet, a holy bank account? What would that be? Well, it's just the, the fact that in your, the stewardship of your finances, you recognize it all belongs to him, and you are seeking his glory, his purposes in your finances. That doesn't mean that every dime has to be given to missions. It just means every dime is his. So every dime needs to be you need to thank God for as a gift that he gives. Every, every dime is to be considered. How, does, how, do, how, do I, how do I use this to honor my God? You take this into your work. What are you working for? What, what, 
What are you, what are you after? And if you say, well, I'm, I'm just trying to provide for my family. Okay, that's, that's a good God-honoring thing. You don't, be, be happy and bold as you do that and do it with thanksgiving and do it as unto the Lord. That's okay. That's good. It makes, it makes your work significant because you do it as unto him. What about God in your relationships? Be holy in all of your relationships. What about God in your entertainment? God in your body, your health, your sexuality, your eyes, your ears. God in your mind. Be holy in every aspect, in all your conduct, every part of who you are. It's all meant for God. And the Christian Obedience means we offer it all up to him. Now, if that seems constricting to you, if you're nervous about being holy with your finances and holy in your relationships and holy in your entertainment, if that seems narrow and binding and constricting, the only reason for that would be that you're still infatuated with nickels. You, you, can't, you can't believe that there is a greater value in being like God and serving the purposes of God and then not desire the things of God. And so when we, when we resist holiness because it feels constricting, we need to confess the idolatry and the ignorance behind that and pray, Lord, give me a vision, you see, for what, what the beauty of holiness is. And what it could look like in my life when I offer up my entertainment to Jesus because I want to use my time and my eyes and my mind in a way that honors him. Doesn't mean you can't be entertained, but be holy in it. See, we need, we need a vision for this, and, and that's, I think, where Peter is so helpful, and we'll wrap up with this. Because notice how he couches this. As he who called you is holy, so be holy. Why does he say it that way? What's he, what's he talking about? Well, uh, if you would liken the Christian to a, to a, a train um, where you have this mighty engine way up front and then car after car after car after car after car after car. And maybe you're the little, uh, you're the little car just nondescript way towards the back of the train. What, what is your confidence that you're going to reach your destination? Well, you're, the single confidence that you have, the little car way in the back of the train that you're going to reach your destination is that the engine knows where it's going and is able to get you there. And you're linked to it. As long as you stay connected to the engine, you're going to get to where you're going. Well, that's exactly how Peter thinks about the believer. That God has called you. You have been linked by the sovereign purposes of God to the redemption that God is working in Jesus Christ. That is the mighty engine of your holiness. When he talks about the calling of God, he's talking about the effectual calling of God. The call that actually takes you and links you, connects you to Jesus Christ so that your life in this world and the world to come is linked to Jesus and that link cannot be severed. God's calling and his election are sure. That means that you, in spite of your weakness, in spite of your sin, and in spite of your failures, you have been linked to Jesus if you are a Christian, and you're going to get home. You're going to arrive. God's purposes are going to be manifest and magnified in your life. I hope that 
that, I hope that's really encouraging to you. I think sometimes we just sort of take that for granted and we don't, we don't suck on it and get the goodness from that truth. But if, if you are a Christian who's dealing seriously with your own heart and you have come into contact with the reality of your weakness and you've sensed that it would be easy for you to stumble and fall, it would be easy for you to lose even your faith if it were left up to you. But it's not left up to you. As he who called you is holy. So be holy. You see, what Peter wants to do is create a vision for what we are by the calling of God and what God's intent, what his sovereign purposes are for you. We are used to a world where there is no true holiness in terms of we don't see what holiness looks like. But the reality is God knows exactly what he's doing and he's, he is at work in our life and one day will present us perfected in his sight. And that reality is already now in the hearts and lives of his people becoming true. It's becoming true. If you're a Christian, the Spirit of God is convicting you of what doesn't belong to you any longer. And so I would, I would encourage you, challenge you from this text, that you get excited about God's calling in your life. That you learn to delight in the holiness of God, the pure goodness of God and that God is is going to make you like that holy purely good and that you then begin to identify and hate what doesn't belong to you anymore it belonged to your former ignorance but what are the thoughts the attitudes the patterns, the desires, the acts, the words that are driven then by ignorance, not by the calling of God. What are the things that simply don't belong to your identity any longer? They're, they're, they, they're, they're, it, does, it doesn't fit with you anymore. You have been called to be a holy people. And then pray that the Lord helps you identify and hate those things and go to war with them. Because you are not the former you, God is making you new. And then get serious about that fight. I, I think it's so true. So often, we're, we're not serious about holiness. And we're not serious about holiness. Part of the reason we're not serious about holiness is because it doesn't seem like something that is ultimately valuable to us. Something that is supremely to be desired. Well, pray that the Lord would give you a hunger for holiness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who go to the gates of heaven and plead with God, God, make me holy. Make me hunger for righteousness. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be useful. I want to bear fruit to the glory of God. I do not want to waste my life chasing passing things. I don't want to waste my life in bondage to silly little idols that I've allowed control in my, in my life. I want to be done with them. 
Give me a heart that loves Jesus and that trusts Jesus, believes in the grace of Jesus so fiercely that I have the power to engage in the sin that is still remaining. In the confidence that one day I will absolutely overcome, but also in the confidence that today God can work obedience into my life. Because he can. The grace that forgives is a grace that can transform. And so remember the grace. Remember it's grace that called you. God wasn't, he didn't call you because of your potential. He didn't call you for any other reason than he decided to take the lowly things and make them into magnificent displays of his splendor. And that includes you. And the grace that has called you is a grace that is freely yours now to forgive you and to empower you, to pull you day by day along this track until you come face to face with the grace that will be given to you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Friends, unbelievable things are true of us if we are Christians. Unbelievably true things. Things are true of us. Glorious things are true of us. Let those things be the things that fill your mind. Let those things be the things that you take as weapons in your hand against uh, disobedience, against unbelief, against um, ingratitude, against besetting sins. Take the reality of all that God has promised you, all that God has called you to, and let's strive together for holiness to the glory of our God and Father. Amen. Father, you know the the pain that your children experience as we strive for obedience and find over and over again that our, our efforts are so far, they fall short. And yet, Lord, I thank you that you call us children of obedience. As we increasingly love Jesus and love the Lord because love The Lord your God with all your heart is the first command of the law. And as we're developing an increasing love for people, weak, frail, broken people like us, and yet people who have been called by God to glorious things. Father, I, I pray that we would have a holiness that's driven, empowered, rooted in grace in all the grace of what you freely have done for us and promised to us. And then, then, Lord, there would be a great confidence as we go about this battle together, being honest with each other, encouraging each other, maybe admonishing if necessary, but knowing that God has called us to be holy. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, As we strive together as you command, Lord, you are pleased. You are pleased. Your benediction rests on us. And you will use us to bear fruit for the the glory of Jesus. And so, Lord, that's our prayer. I thank you so much, Lord, that you know exactly where we live tonight. I pray you would speak to us and comfort us and encourage us and move us along until we see Jesus face to face. We pray in his name. Amen.